talk to your friends these days and invariably the topic that comes up is housing and its unaffordability to many Angelinos. But there's another issue relating to housing that more and more people are also talking about. And that's exactly how do we want to live? How do we live in 20 years? What kind of questions are coming up? How do we get older? We all get older, much, much, much older. And how can we relate that on an aesthetics, first of all, and on, on a level where you feel comfort? That's Andreas Tolker. He writes about design, art and architecture in Berlin, and we met him on KCRW's recent trip there. We found that Berliners are facing many of the same challenges in terms of affordable living space, as well as coming to grips with changing family structure. But they've come up with an intriguing solution. So people are gathering and they all give in money in one pot and then they decide on a basically democratic level where the money is going to be put in and where they are going to buy a property and how they are going to change it. And they bring in really interesting architects and do some new kind of new understanding of social community. Andreas Tolker is talking about a kind of co-housing called Baugruppen, meaning building groups. Basically, you choose who you want to live alongside and then you split the costs of development of a residential complex. One of the first movements of this group was like gay people gathering together and trying to build up their home when they get older. So you have like special interest groups that come up with that. And it's our project. We all feel responsible for it. There was Andreas Tolker, design and architecture writer living in Berlin. So would this model work in L.A.? In a moment, we'll find out. Before that, though, come with us to Ritterstrasse 50 at the more suburban and working-class end of a now trendy and expensive area in Berlin called Kreuzberg. There, in a neighbourhood of 1960s residential blocks, you'll find R50, a six-storey building that sits in a large yard with a shared playing area for kids, a balcony filled with plants runs the entire perimeter of each level. We enter through the basement into a large community room with a grand piano. And then we go up to the fifth floor where we enter one of three units. It's an open-plan space with raw concrete floors and ceilings and wood-panelled walls. Glass doors on three sides open onto the balcony and flood the space with light. A child's birthday wishes hang over the dining table. This is the family home of Christoph Schmidt, and it's also a case study because Christoph is one of the members of a design team that co-created R50 along with 18 other households. We talked to Christoph and one of the other designers, architect Verena von Beckerath, and we asked first, so how did you find your group of people and did they need to pay the money up front? There is a, an internet website which is open for everybody who's interested in Baugruppen project and our uh, distributing uh, email contacts. Um, we had to. Uh, we, we got a lot of people who were interested in this project. Um, yes, they had to bring the money, and they could uh, also apply for uh, a loan. Um, each member of the group had to um, follow the idea of to go to one bank and to get the loans from one bank. And was a very good group. Some of them are artists, most of them are families. We started a process where the future owners were really integrated in the design process. We did like about 40 or 50, or 45 I think in the end was, uh, meetings with the whole group. And we had to continuously find people 
to move in in the house or in the project. So it was a process over one and a half years of planning and finding people. And we started with 50% of people to have a stable uh, amount of uh, resources. How many people were filling a room? This is 19 apartments, and I think with the meetings, most of the parties were present. We have a really small office, and we, we held every meeting in, in our office. Uh, every 14 days, uh, we had uh, a group of, let's say, like uh, from 20 to 30 people in our office, and we hadn't got enough uh, chairs. For us, very, very important to find out more and more, because the last 30 years there was not so much about participation. It was more like developing architects are experts, and the including of a user was not very common the last 30 years. It was in the 70s last time, or 80s. That's Christoph Schmidt. So I'm sure you're wondering by now how 19 families meeting every two weeks managed to agree on a design. It turns out the biggest disputes arose over the communal parts of the building, whether to have common spaces on each floor or just in the basement, whether to have a shared laundry and yard. Every square metre of communal space you have to pay as a single proprietor as well. So the people spend in the end a lot of money into communal spaces here. We have a roof terrace, we have that 120 square meters big uh, communal space in the basement, we have a big garden. And you could have done it even more efficient in terms for the individual uh, amount of money you have to spend for an apartment. But luckily the people were so interested in talking about a communal life. Now that people live here and have their lives and their work and we see the children grow up, we think that the architecture of the project and the lives of its inhabitants really work together in a very nice way and everything can be also adapted and change a little bit, whereas it's not that the project is not finished, but it has a certain character or ability to adapt to future lives. And that's what I think is really interesting about the project. We love it. So we learned a lot from the users, we learned a lot from these uh, negotiation processes and we hope that we can introduce these ideas also into a more anonymous context of social housing. The total price of the units is a little under $2,700 per square metre. That's around $250 a square foot. And the designers achieved this by trading fancy materials for a simple, flexible structure that allowed for customization of each individual unit. So here, the interesting thing is that we, on one hand, worked on how to do affordable housing, and on the other hand, as a parallel development, how to do customized housing, but not in order to raise the value of the house, but in order to give people who want to stay in the city an idea to adapt the apartment to their own needs. Now the designers are working on a larger Baugruppe with around 100 units, but the costs won't be as low as for R50 due to rising building costs and a higher priced location. However, in both cases it's been possible to keep costs relatively low because the city has given a helping hand. They do this by offering the land to Baugruppen in a bidding process that is based not on price, but on the quality of the residential concept. Then the city holds the land for the the group at a stable price while they seek partners and raise funds. 
this was a great help because I think usually Baugruppen have the problem that to form a group and to bid for a plot is almost impossible at the same time. Either you form a group and then decision might be easier or you find a plot but there's no group to buy the plot. So it's, a, it's very critical, this part of the bau, foundation of a Baugruppe. R50 was finished two years ago, so it's still early days for the residents. And by all accounts, everyone's getting along well. But what happens if an owner wants to sell their home? Is there a limit on how much they can sell it for? Does the collective have to approve the new buyer? And how do you stop owners speculating on these spaces in a time of booming property prices? Verena explains that Baugruppen don't set down resale price limits or right of collective approval, unlike co-ops. But she says the individual owners of R50 are currently working on a manifesto, which is based on trust. Several hundred Baugruppen have been built in the last 15 years, and if R50 is anything to go by, there's an idealistic feeling to the movement. So I wondered, does it come out of Berlin's particular history? Berlin, there is a long tradition in communal housing, living in a commune. For example, there were squatted um, houses in the 1970s and 80s, and people really wanted to live together and to create their own collective lifestyle. So this is a tradition we build on now. Are there roots that go back further? Yeah, I think there's a long uh, tradition, especially in Germany, but not only. For example, I spent, two years ago I spent three months in Rome and I saw beautiful communal housing projects from the 1920s and 30s, for example, in Gabatella or Tusculano. Also in America, you have um, communal utopian settlements, especially in California, but not only. So I think it's not only a German tradition. There was Verena von Beckerath of Haider and von Beckerath and Christoph Schmidt of IFAU, or the Institute for Applied Urbanism. They're members of the design team for R50, a Baugruppe project in Kreuzberg, Berlin. So could the Baugruppen model work here? Or is LA too wed to the single-family home? Or to residential real estate as a commodity? Is land simply too expensive for groups to be competitive with institutional and cash buyers? In a moment, we'll hear from someone who's tested the waters. First up, though, as Verena von Beckerath pointed out, California has had its own experiments in collective living. And one that still remains is in Silver Lake. Richard Corsini is a designer of residential buildings, and he knows it well. You're referring to a particular project designed by Gregory Ain, uh, the Avenel Cooperative, also known as Avenel Homes, uh, that was built in Silver Lake in the post-war era, about 1947. And that was a very interesting project. I happened to live there, and I've lived there for the last 20 years. Um, it was developed by a group of communists. They were leaders in the union movements here in Los Angeles. And they decided that they wanted to build a small community for themselves with very practical intentions in terms of efficient ways of investing their money. Uh, they pooled their resources, they bought a piece of land, and they hired Gregory Ain as their architect to produce a 10-unit neighborhood for themselves. Did they accomplish what they set out to do? I mean, this was a time when communism was looked on with great disfavor. In fact, it still is. 
Absolutely. Gregorian was a blacklisted architect. He was a socialist, not a communist. And to American minds, that seems like, you know, painted all into one red corner. But really, when he got down to it, there were great debates between whether the Trotskyites or the, or the collectivists. The Marxists. Or the Leninists. Or the, they, were, they thinly sliced those distinctions. But the notion that there was this kind of ideological idea driving this is probably part of the story. But there was really a lot of just, you know, common sense practicality behind the initiative, right? Here, uh, working middle-class families, regardless of their political persuasion, decide we want to build better housing for ourselves, and we are united in our value system and beliefs. It didn't keep them from arguing about every little thing like everybody else does, but it was something that allowed them to break the formula of developer-built housing. And in retrospect, you realize the old Levittown model of which most of the country was being built in the uh, post-war era, this was really a response to that model. Uh, There was shared space, yet there was also private backyards. There were townhouses, but they could have easily been detached and become single-family houses. So we have this group. They've got, they're ideologically very, very strong. Gregory Ayn's a great architect. But nonetheless, you say there's still some arguments. What were the arguments about? Well, what I heard from the old timers when I had originally moved in is it was as mundane as any other homeowners association. You know, who's taking out the trash? Who's going to do the repairs on the the lighting? Uh, who's going to fix the leaky roof? Oh, should we all pay for that collectively, or should that be that homeowner doing it because that's the way they live and how they deal with their backyard and all that sort of thing? So. All the quibbling is sort of a, a pan-human issue, I think. So, Now, did you find these old-timers, despite the quibbling, were they pleased with the choices they'd made with the Avenel housing? Oh, they were absolutely pleased with it. And I think part of the what was remarkable is these houses were designed and built right after World War II for families who are just having their, their, their children. They were uh, designed for families of four They worked well for families of four. Every one of them raised their kids to adulthood in this house. And many of them remained until they died. And and they were, you know, Carl and Dorothy Brandt were 100 years old when they they died uh, just a couple of years ago. So the design of the house is able to work through the inherent flexibility and its architectural characteristics to serve a multi-generational evolution of you know, a person or a family's life. There's no issue about having a starter house, moving up to a bigger house, moving up to uh, an empty nest, and then figuring out what to do after that. The type and the value system of the original clients really prevailed through their entire life. So Avenel, I've seen Avenel. It's beautiful, and it just sounds lovely, the way you said, despite the pan-human foibles. Um, (laughs) Do you think a project of a similar nature is realizable today in L.A.? I don't think there's any question that it's uh, realizable. I think the real challenge to uh, developing a project like that will be getting financing for it. Finance and get property at an affordable price, because this seems to be the other factor in L.A. is property is so out of reach. Even if you come together with six of you and you break it down into a percentage of that land cost, it's so expensive. And you're competing with people who can pay cash or institutions and so on. Well, I think strategically, the way to really do that is to look where other people aren't looking. And if it were up to me right now, I would be looking for any place that has 
transit that has affordable land, and where would that be? You know, that would be the my parameters for my real estate search, and I would think South LA would be prime. I did speak to a developer of affordable housing who's built hundreds, if not thousands of units over the years, who said that in his young days, when he was kind of ideological, he did work on a couple of cooperative design projects. He was the designer and had a bunch of people. He was navigating all their desires. And he said it drove him crazy. What about that piece of it? (laughs) Well, that sounds like pretty much every project that an architect deals with. So as an architect, you have to develop both a thick skin and and some political skill to really make all that work. So I think there will be some temperaments that can deal with that better than others, but I don't think that should be the real impediment. It's really about getting a meeting of the minds and the spirit to get something like this off the ground. That was Rick Corsini, partner in Corsini Stark Architects. I'm Francis Anderton. You're listening to DNA and we're talking about Berlin-style Baugruppen and whether they could work in L.A., the journey itself is not easy because, as any innovation, there's uh, multiple individuals involved that perhaps have to think a little bit different than they are used to thinking. Rick Abramson is principal of architecture firm Workplace Studio, and he's currently working with L.A. County's Department of Regional Planning on guidelines for compact or very small homes. That's a variant on the small lot ordinance. This work was partly informed by lessons learned when he and three friends looked into the possibility of growing old together in a shared group of dwellings, similar to a Baragrupa, but called here an intentional community. Certainly the bank's raised an eyebrow when first approached. Uh, as we talk through, though, how they actually fund developments, typically they, they prefer to handle everything as a single loan, um, manage it through a single contractor, and their question was, what happens if you have multiple individuals who are unified collectively and potentially uh, different contracting? And so we had to work with them to ensure that even though it was a individual basis, that the process and the production was still collective, that there would be one contractor and there would be one administrator, and so that it would almost be a grouping of mini loans or micro loans that would come together and be administered as a traditional single loan. So this process of education bore fruit. You didn't entirely hit a brick wall in terms of the concept. In fact, I think uh, through the process, several of them really started thinking differently about how financing and loans relate to making neighborhoods and perhaps opening some doors so that they could reach individuals who maybe they wouldn't normally be reaching. Do you think the Baugrupa model is a good one? I do. And I think for As long as I can remember, certainly since the advent of zoning, we have distinguished between single-family living, the single-family home, and multi-family living, which has traditionally been apartments and condominiums. And now we actually have a third opportunity that's neither single-family nor multi-family, and it's what I guess is best called multiple-single. And it's truly a third way of living. It's this individual ownership in a more collective context. I think it's truly just a viable third model for living in an urbanized area that has never before been really available to us. 
Rick Abramson is Principal of Workplace Studio and he's currently working with LA County's Department of Regional Planning on new guidelines to foster compact or very small homes in the county. Read more about that on our website. I'm Francis Anderton. You're listening to DNA. In a moment, how to get the best spot on the beach on a board game. 